Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay. You're a psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news, bringing you everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to improve your relationships, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes of mental illness and potential new treatments. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources about mental health issues and with the benefit of 25 years in the practice of psychiatry, along the way striving to decrease the stigma associated with mental illness and needing treatment for it, and to better inform the general public about mental health issues. Welcome back to tonight's podcast. And as always, you can hear this either live Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. or play back the archived version on americaswebradio.com. Now, first on tonight's podcast... An intersection between music and mental health. Uh, The article says that music has powerful and visible effects on the brain. Some researchers at Wake Forest University have found that it doesn't matter if it's Bach, the Beatles, Brad Paisley, or Bruno Mars, your favorite music likely triggers a similar type of activity in your brain as other people's favorites do in theirs. Music is primal. It affects all of us, but in very personal, unique ways. Your interaction with music is different than mine, but it's still powerful. Your brain has a reaction when you like or don't like something, including music. And dislike looks different than like, and much different than favorite. And we'll see what is meant by that as we go along and discover what the researchers did. Now, to study how music preferences might affect functional brain connectivity, that is, the interactions among separate areas of the brain, researchers used functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI, This is a type of brain imaging which looks at brain activity in real time by detecting changes in blood flow in different areas of the brain. Scans were made of 21 people while they listened to music that they said they most liked and disliked from among five genres, classical, country, rap, rock, and Chinese opera into a song or piece of music they had previously named as their personal favorite. Those fMRI scans showed a consistent pattern. The listeners' preferences, not the type of music they were listening to, had the greatest impact on brain connectivity, especially on a brain circuit known to be involved in internally focused thought, empathy, and self-awareness. This circuit, called the default mode network, 
was poorly connected when the participants were listening to the music they disliked, better connected when listening to the music they liked, and the most connected when listening to their favorites. The researchers also found that listening to favorite songs altered the connectivity between auditory brain areas that are responsible for hearing and a region of the brain responsible for memory and social emotion consolidation. Given that music preferences are uniquely individualized phenomena and that music can vary in acoustic complexity and the presence or absence of lyrics, the consistency of their results was something the researchers didn't expect. By the way, this was published in the journal Nature Scientific Reports. The findings might explain while comparable emotional and mental states can be experienced by people listening to music that differs as widely as Beethoven and Eminem. Not surprising was the extent of the connectivity seen in the participants' brains when they were listening to their favorite tunes. There are probably some features in music that make you feel a certain way, but it's your experience with it that is even more important. Your associations with certain music involve many different parts of the brain, and they're very strong. In some cases, you might not even like the particular song, but you like the memories or feelings that you associate with it. In other research projects, these same researchers have found that trained music conductors are likely to be better at combining and using auditory and visual clues than people without musical training, and that activity in brain areas associated with vision decreases during tasks that involve listening, and that different levels of complexity in music can have different effects on functional brain connectivity. Music isn't going to cure anything, but it definitely can play a therapeutic role. In countries such as Germany, music therapy is commonly an integral part of the rehabilitation process for people who have had strokes, brain surgery, or traumatic brain injuries. If you're trying to restore neuroplasticity in the brain, that is to re-establish some of the connections that were there before the injury, whether it's a traumatic brain injury, or surgery, or stroke, music can be a big help and should be more widely used in this country. There are programs that help people with Alzheimer's, dementia, and other cognitive and physical problems reconnect with the world through music. One such program is called Music and Memory, which employs iPods with customized playlists featuring songs popular when the participating individual was under 30 years old. You can actually see the power of music. 
people who are just sitting there, not engaged in anything, light up when they start hearing music from when they were 25. Well, there is really nothing else but music that works so well in this regard as far as getting people who are in memory care units in nursing homes or assisted living situations to brighten up. Uh, I have heard many stories from people who have their parents and grandparents in such facilities and even people who go around to these facilities playing music for the residents that when they hear songs from their youth, uh, they're, they, they're brighten up, their mood improves, and they even have uh, more periods of lucidity where their clarity of thought and memory uh, actually is better for a little while. So music definitely can be very powerful mentally. We all are familiar with the powerful emotions music can elicit. We feel so good when we hear a favorite song. Uh, we tend to feel very negative and sort of noxious stimuli when we're hearing music that we don't like or a particular song that we don't like. Uh, music can bring very negative emotions as well. Uh, for example, uh, if you hear a song that you strongly associate with a failed past relationship, obviously that can bring about a lot of negative emotions. And it was interesting to me to read in this article about this research that music therapy is very commonly a part of rehabilitation for brain injuries. Um, in, in this country, music therapy, along with things like art therapy and horticulture therapy, were an integral component of your classic, old-fashioned, typical comprehensive psychiatric facility treatment. Uh, unfortunately, those things have gone by the wayside as the health insurance industry has cracked down on how much they're willing to pay for psychiatric hospitalization. Uh, but all of those things I mentioned used to be a component of the treatment. Music therapy uh, again, very powerful component in terms of getting people more in touch with their emotions and learning more about themselves, learning more about the issues that disrupt their emotional state and about the things in their life they need to change. So it is a very powerful medium, and I agree with the researchers' assertion they would like to see music therapy brought back into the treatment for brain injury and stroke and re recovery from brain surgery uh, as it is in Germany and other countries and I couldn't agree more would also uh, hope that now that there's research like this out there that psychiatric treatment programs would also realize the value of music therapy and start to reintegrate that into their treatment in the meantime, 
for any of you musicians out there, especially any of you keyboard players, um, if you want to have an extremely rewarding experience sharing your ability to play music with others, uh, I guarantee you, you will be amazed at the feedback you get if you volunteer to go to assisted living situations and uh, memory care units to play old tunes for the elderly. Uh, just try it, and you'll be amazed at the feedback that you get. I mean, extremely rewarding experience. All right, well, we're going to take our first commercial break. We'll be back after that with more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. Next up on tonight's podcast. Have you heard the expression, an attitude of gratitude? You probably have. And unfortunately, I think it's overused, becoming cliche. However... There is more to it than just a catchy slogan. There is lots of research to document that having such an attitude actually does translate into feeling better mentally and emotionally. Uh, <clears throat> I remember a great story a patient told me many years ago that uh, her way of coping with stress was that she would start each day 
making a list of things that she was grateful for and by doing so would keep herself grounded, keep things in perspective and realize that no matter what stress she would be dealing with that day, that as long as those things were still on her list, she was still doing great. And, you know, she would start with just very, very basic things that we all take for granted. I have my eyesight. I'm not blind. I have two arms, two legs, ten digits on those arms and legs, all intact and working, and going from there. So really, starting from the very bare bones basics, your own health, your ability to function uh, and move around in the world, which unfortunately many disabled uh, people don't have. So let's look at this article that uh, talks about how expressing gratitude makes us healthier. And as I was saying, the article even points out that expressing gratitude has become trendy. These days you can easily find a stock of gratitude journals and notebooks at your local stationery store or bookseller or search for tips on how to express gratitude in your life. As it turns out, all this expression of gratitude is a good thing for our minds and bodies. In a new article in the National Communication Association's Review of Communication, authors explore the connection between gratitude expression and psychological and physical well-being. As one might expect, positivity begets positive results for our well-being. What the authors write may seem obvious. Gratitude consistently associates with many positive social, psychological, and health states, such as an increased likelihood of helping others, optimism, exercise, and reduced reports of physical symptoms. However, the authors argue that not enough research has been done on the communication of gratitude and its effect on well-being, and they propose further avenues for analysis of gratitude messages and their impact. Expressions of gratitude are often a response to others' acts of generosity. If you receive a gift from someone or an act of kindness, you reciprocate by showing gratitude, sometimes publicly, to highlight the giver's altruistic act. Gratitude is a different emotion from happiness because it so often stems from the actions of another individual. To experience it, one must receive a message and interpret the message. Numerous studies show that expressing and experiencing gratitude increases life satisfaction, vitality, hope, and optimism. Moreover, it contributes to decreased levels of depression, anxiety, envy, and job-related stress and burnout. That's very interesting. Decreased levels of envy. That is certainly a negative very draining emotion. Now, perhaps most intriguing is that people who experience and express gratitude 
have reported fewer symptoms of physical illness, more exercise, and better quality of sleep. Again, who wouldn't be grateful for that? While the immediate effects of gratitude expression are clear, the authors argue that it also contributes to long-term success in relationships and personal well-being. Up to six months after a deliberate expression to one's relationships partner. Just as we periodically boost our immune systems through vaccines, we can boost our relationships and mental state by expressing gratitude to our partners on a regular basis. The authors leave us with a general health practice. Why not regularly communicate gratitude to enhance our social connectedness? While trendy or not, we certainly cannot argue that there are health benefits to it. Uh, any sort of expression of positive emotion certainly gives the body a surge of positive hormones, sort of think of the opposite of stress hormones, right? Uh, stress hormones from negative emotions we know do damage to our health physically and mentally. So if we practice regularly expressing gratitude, those uh, more positive hormones are circulating through our body and that's going to be better for our physical health, not just our mental health. Uh, so again, a good practice, uh, cliche or not. Now, speaking of other things that will enhance the feel-good chemical systems in the brain. Here is an article about spiritual retreats and the changes that they bring about may prime the brain for spiritual experiences. More Americans than ever are turning to spiritual, meditative, and religious treats, uh, sorry, retreats, <laughs> as a way to reset their daily life and enhance well-being. Now, researchers at the Marcus Institute of Integrative Health at the Thomas Jefferson University show there are changes in certain brain chemical systems in the brains of people who participate in these retreats, specifically the dopamine and serotonin systems in the brain. Now, you'll recognize those two names of these brain chemicals if you follow mental health issues to any degree. Uh, <clears throat> serotonin is the brain system that most, but not all, antidepressant medications work through. Uh, there are the serotonin reuptake inhibitors and the serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. And so we know that serotonin pathways are very much involved in states of depression and anxiety, and dopamine is your pleasure, reward, drive, motivation, libido chemical. And so we, we certainly know that those pathways are also involved in mood. So to document that people who participate in these spiritual retreats can see changes in these systems of the brain is quite powerful. 
Now, this research was published in the journal called Religion, Brain, and Behavior. Since serotonin and dopamine are part of the emotional and reward systems of the brain, it helps to understand why these practices result in powerful, positive emotional experiences. The study showed significant changes in dopamine and serotonin transporters after a seven-day retreat, which could help prime participants for the spiritual experiences that they reported. Now, what they did was they took brain scans after the retreat, and these post-retreat scans revealed decreases in dopamine transporter and serotonin transporter binding. Now, what that means, if the transporters of these chemicals aren't being bound as much, that means that more of those chemicals are available to just flow in these pathways in the brain. This is associated with positive emotions and spiritual feelings. In particular, dopamine is responsible for mediating cognition, just thought, attention, memory, as well as emotion and also movement. Uh, dopamine very much involved in movement. Think of Parkinson's disease and, and other movement disorders where the dopamine pathways are disrupted. When serotonin is involved in emotional regulation and mood. The study included 14 Christian participants, ranging in age from 24 through 76. They attended an Ignatian retreat based on the spiritual exercises developed by St. Ignatius Loyola, who founded the Jesuits. Following a morning mass, participants spent most of the day in silent contemplation, prayer, and reflection and attended a daily meeting with a spiritual director for guidance and insights. After returning, study subjects also completed a number of surveys, which showed marked improvements in their perceived physical health, tension, and fatigue. They also reported increased feelings of self-transcendence, which correlated to the change in the dopamine binding. In some ways, the study raises more questions than it answers. The research team is curious about which aspects of the retreat caused the changes in these brain neurotransmitter systems and if different retreats would produce different results. And they hope to be able to do studies in the future to answer these questions. And I agree, well, I think it's fascinating that they can show changes in brain neurotransmitter systems from the effects of spiritual retreats, I would be curious to know what would happen if you chose retreats with a different focus, uh, different faiths, uh, non-Christian faiths, non-religious retreats, and so on. Uh, might you see similar results? My guess is that you probably would. All right, we're going to take a commercial break. When we come back, more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? 
Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps. These are generally benign growths that occur from chronic sinus infection or allergies that are either undertreated or have not been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery and correction of a deviated nasal septum and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office. We use a state-of-the-art equipment so that you can see the problem. You will be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment. We believe in old-fashioned medicine, where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. You can rest assured that all options will be offered before surgery is recommended, because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. And I have a children's mental health update for you. Unfortunately, more bad news about the health effects of childhood bullying. That may lead to increased chronic disease in adulthood. Being bullied during childhood might have lifelong health effects related to chronic stress exposure, including an increased risk for heart disease and diabetes in adulthood. This, according to a research review in the March-April 2017 issue of the Harvard Review of Psychiatry. Uh, This is just another piece of evidence in a long litany of evidence showing the very serious health effects of childhood bullying and why it must be stopped. Uh, It should come as no surprise the severe amount of stress that bullying can cause increases the blood circulation of stress hormones, especially cortisol, and over a long period of time that can do damage to organs which can result in adulthood diseases. These, uh, the increase in inflammatory proteins in blood circulation from the stress hormones directly can be traced to the development of heart disease and diabetes, in fact. Recent advances in understanding of the negative health effects of chronic stress highlight a pressing need to clarify the longer, uh, the longer term rather health implications of childhood bullying, which as a form of chronic social stress 
has health, uh, significant health consequences if not addressed early. Child health professionals need to assess both the mental and physical health effects of bullying. Once dismissed as an incredibly uh, dismissed as an innocuous experience of childhood, bullying is now widely recognized as having significant psychological effects, particularly with chronic or long-standing exposure. Bullying has been linked to an increased risk of psychiatric disorders, although there are still questions about the direction of that association. Bullied children also have increased rates of various physical symptoms. Recurrent and unexplained symptoms may be a warning sign of bullying. It is important that we appreciate the biological processes linking these psychological and physiological phenomena, including their potential to impact long-term health. Studies of other types of chronic stress exposure raise concerns that bullying, a classic form of chronic social stress, could have lasting effects on physical health. Any form of continued physical or mental stress can put a strain on the body, leading to increasing wear and tear. This process is referred to as allostatic load. It reflects the cumulative impact of biological responses to ongoing or repeated stress, for example, the fight-or-flight response being activated repeatedly and excessively over a long period of time due to bullying. When an individual is exposed to even brief periods of stress, the body can often effectively cope with the challenge and recover back to baseline. Yet with chronic stress, this recovery process may not have ample opportunity to occur, and allostatic load can build to a point of overload. In such states of allostatic overload, physiological processes critical to health and well-being can be negatively impacted. With increasing allostatic load, chronic stress can lead to changes in inflammatory, hormonal, and metabolic processes. Over time, these physiological alterations can contribute to the development of diseases, including depression, diabetes, and heart disease, as well as progression of psychiatric disorders. Early life stress exposure can also affect the way in which these physiological systems respond to future stressors. This may occur in part through epigenetic changes, which are alterations in gene function related to environmental exposures that alter the stress response itself. The stress from bullying in this case would be the environmental exposure to bring about alterations in gene function, as opposed to something like exposure to air pollution or cancer-causing cancer chemicals in the soil or air. Chronic stress may also impair the child's ability to develop psychological skills that foster resilience, reducing their capacity to cope with future stress. 
So in that sense, it becomes a vicious cycle. Bullying and the stress from it impairs the child's ability to develop resilience, which would otherwise protect them from the stress of bullying. The authors emphasize that although there is no cause and effect relationship that can be shown so far, they emphasize that future research, in particular collaborations between clinical and basic science researchers, could have important implications for understanding and potentially intervening in the relationship between childhood bullying and long-term health. Current research shows the importance of addressing bullying victimization as what should be a standard component of clinical care for children at the primary care doctor's office, that would mean the pediatrician, as well as in mental health care. Asking about bullying represents a practical first step towards intervening to prevent traumatic exposure and reduce risk for further psychiatric and related morbidities. I agree with the author's assertion this should become a standard part of any primary health care evaluation of children and adolescents when they go for their well child exams. Uh, that should be a question they're asked about. Are they being victimized or bullied in school? Uh, they should also be screened, of course, for any hidden victimization of physical abuse or sexual abuse. And by hidden, I mean that there is no obvious physical sign that that physician can see. Uh, and I liken this to the call for primary care physicians to screen for depression, which other researchers have called for that to happen. Uh, I couldn't agree with this more. Your primary care physician routinely screens you for other chronic diseases that will result in poor physical health and shortened life, if not impaired quality of life, such as heart disease, diabetes, they check your blood sugar, they check your cholesterol, they check your blood pressure. Depression should be a standard part of an exam. And again, during a well-child exam, now that we have well-documented the negative chronic health effects that can happen to bullied kids, not just in childhood, but going on into adulthood, uh, it behooves pediatricians and family practitioners who examine children and adolescents on a regular basis to screen for these issues. Uh, once again, we need to keep talking about bullying. Uh, we need to do more to make it stop. We need to stop tolerating it. We need to stop just throwing up our hands or rolling our eyes and say, well, that's just kids being kids. I dealt with it. They have to deal with it too. We need to stop that attitude. It's, it's a very dangerous attitude. It can lead to very serious health consequences as this research that we just talked about demonstrates. Well, let's move on to how tackling depression by changing the way you think might work. Teaching patients not to ruminate offers an important coping skill for depression. Now, you may be familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy, 
which is used to treat not just depression, but anxiety, a whole host of psychiatric type symptoms and syndromes. And that is a type of therapy that teaches people to change how they think. It is uh, in its core an attempt to get people to stop thinking negative thoughts, which then inevitably lead to negative emotions. So the idea behind cognitive behavioral therapy is if you counteract the negative thoughts and replace them with positive thoughts, then you're less apt to have negative emotions such as anxiety and or depression and are going to feel better emotionally. But this study here is more specific. It's targeting a specific type of symptom of depression that is negative and guilty ruminations, uh, which is a common symptom of depression. People will dwell on self-critical thoughts. They'll see themselves in an extremely negative light. They'll think they're no good. They have no self-worth. They're uh, a failure uh, and see themselves in a very negative light, project that negative view of themselves onto others, meaning they will assume others around them uh, must see them for uh, the failure that they see themselves as. And uh, this is a core symptom of depression. Now, um, by tackling this one symptom, I thought to myself, well, this is a very interesting approach, and how successful is it going to be if you're not doing something else to treat these people's depression? So let's uh, read on and see what the researchers did. The study was done in Norway at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology, and the researchers recently published a scientific paper on the treatment of depression using their variation of cognitive behavioral therapy called metacognitive therapy. And their study shows that learning to reduce rumination is very helpful for patients with depressive symptoms. Some people experience their persistent ruminative thinking as completely uncontrollable, but individuals with depression can gain control over it, apparently. Well, we'll save the methods and results of the study for after our next commercial break, which we'll take now. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott. We'll be right back with more mental health-related news after this break. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. 
They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. And at the moment, we just started talking about how some Norwegian researchers are helping people tackle depression by changing the way they think, using a method called metacognitive therapy, as opposed to the more familiar cognitive behavioral therapy, which I think really metacognitive therapy is just a form of cognitive behavioral therapy. And they're specifically trying to get people with depression to stop their negative ruminations or ruminative thinking. The participants involved in the study were treated over a 10-week period. After six months, 80% of the participants had achieved full recovery from their depression diagnosis. Now, I have to say, that's an astoundingly high success rate. You may think, wow, only 80% after six months? That's still a good bit of people suffering for a long period of time, that 20%. And you're right. But um, sadly, uh, as far as depression research studies, um, anytime you achieve 80% by even as long as six months, that's rather a, a, an, an astounding success rate. Um, and then the follow-up after another six months showed the same tendency. So uh, today, medications and cognitive behavioral therapy are the recommended treatments for depression and anxiety. And uh, much as we described before the break, the article mentions that in cognitive behavioral therapy, patients engage in analyzing the content of their thoughts to challenge their validity and reality test them. Metacognitive therapy, by contrast, focuses on lessening the ruminative process. Anxiety and depression give rise to difficult and painful negative thoughts. Many patients have thoughts of mistakes, past failures, or other negative thoughts. Metacognitive therapy addresses thinking processes rather than the thought content. Patients with depression think too much, which metacognitive therapy refers to as depressive rumination. Rather than ruminating so much on negative thoughts, metacognitive therapy helps patients to reduce negative thought processes and get them under control. By becoming aware of what happens when they start to ruminate, patients learn to take control of their own thoughts. Instead of reacting by repeatedly ruminating and thinking, how do I feel now? You can try to encounter your thoughts with what they call detached mindfulness. You can see your thoughts as just thoughts and not as a reflection of reality. Most people think that when they think a thought, it must be true. For example, if someone thinks that they are stupid, that person concludes that it must mean that they are. People strongly believe that their thoughts reflect 
reality. So it's very interesting. People are trying to get the patients, the researchers rather, trying to get the patients to look at their thoughts in a detached, mindful, sort of abstract way. Like, oh, I'm having a negative thought about myself and take a detached look at it. Now, patients who participated in the study have been pleasantly surprised by this form of treatment. The researchers come, admit the patients are coming in thinking they're going to talk about all the problems they have and get to the bottom of it. But instead, they're trying to find out how their mind and thinking processes work. You can't control what you think, but you can control how you respond to what you think. So they were trying to get the subjects to say, well, that's a negative thought about yourself, but that doesn't mean it's true. And that doesn't mean you have to keep thinking about it. The problem with several previous depression studies along these lines is that many of them did not use any control groups. You need a control group that doesn't get the same intervention but has the same problems to compare the two groups to make sure the intervention is effective. <clears throat> now, the lack of a control group uh, makes it difficult to know whether a treatment was successful or if the depression just naturally resolved itself because often depression can resolve itself over time. Uh, however, I want to emphasize that it may take eight or nine months or a year and in very, very severe cases we know depression can be fatal. So no one is suggesting that, well, if you have depression, you should just wait, it will go away. Now, this study compared the metacognitive therapy group against one that did not receive treatment, which strengthened their results. So they did have a non-therapy control group, as it were. Uh, a lot of mainstream depression treatment shows a high recurrence rate. Out of 100 patients with depression, Fully half relapse after a year, and after two years, 75 of the 100 have relapsed. That's three-quarters of patients after two years will relapse, have another episode of depression. The relapse rate in their study was much lower. Only a few percent experienced a relapse of depression. The University of Manchester in England has developed the metacognitive therapy approach over the past 20 years as a form of cognitive therapy. Smaller studies at that university have shown that metacognitive therapy treatment has had great effectiveness in treating depression. A soon-to-be-published study that was similar in Denmark has shown the same positive results. It will be interesting to me to see if metacognitive therapy catches on here across the pond and whether some researchers in the United States will start doing studies using it. Next up on Psychiatry Today, deep sleep may act as a fountain of youth in old age. Restorative, sedative-free slumber can ward off mental and physical ailments, according to new research. And I want to emphasize they said sedative-free 
slumber. As we grow old, our nights are frequently plagued by bouts of wakefulness, bathroom trips, and other nuisances as we lose our ability to generate the deep, restorative slumber we enjoyed in our youth. But does that mean older people just need less sleep? No, and in fact, University of Berkeley, uh, University of California, Berkeley researchers rather argue in an article that was published on April 5th in the journal Neuron, the unmet sleep needs of the elderly elevate their risk of memory loss and of a wide range of mental and physical disorders. Nearly every disease killing us later in life has a causal link to lack of sleep. We've done a good job of extending lifespan, but a poor job of extending our health span. Improving sleep is a new pathway for helping to remedy that. So no, it isn't true the elderly need less sleep. It's just that for various reasons, their sleep is lighter and more restless and easily disrupted, such as they might not get enough sleep, but they would benefit from getting more deep sleep. Unlike more cosmetic markers of aging, such as wrinkles and gray hair, sleep deterioration has been linked to such conditions as Alzheimer's disease, heart disease, obesity, diabetes, and stroke. Though older people are less likely than younger cohorts to notice and or report mental fogginess and other symptoms of sleep deprivation, numerous brain studies reveal how poor sleep leaves them cognitively worse off. Moreover, the shift from deep, consolidated sleep in youth to fitful, dissatisfying sleep can start as early as one's 30s, paving the way for sleep-related cognitive and physical ailments in middle age. And while the pharmaceutical industry is raking in billions by catering to insomniacs, the pills designed to help us doze off are a poor substitute for the natural sleep cycles that the brain needs in order to function well. Don't be fooled into thinking sedation is real sleep. It's not. For their review of sleep research, the researchers cite studies, including some of their own, that show the aging brain has trouble generating the kind of slow brain waves that promote deep curative sleep, as well as the neurochemicals that help us switch stably from sleep to wakefulness. The parts of the brain deteriorating earliest are the same regions that give us deep sleep. <clears throat> Aging typically brings on a decline in deep, non-rapid eye movement or slow-wave sleep and the characteristic brain waves associated with it, including both slow waves and faster bursts of brain waves known as sleep spindles. Youthful, healthy slow waves and spindles help transfer memories and information from a part of the temporal lobe called the hippocampus, which provides the brain's short-term memory storage, to the prefrontal cortex, which consolidates the information, acting as the brain's long-term storage. Sadly, both these types of Sleep brain waves diminish markedly as we grow old, and the sleep decline is related to memory decline later in life. Another deficiency is the inability to regulate neurochemicals that stabilize our sleep and help us transition from sleep to waking states. These chemicals include galanin, which promotes sleep, 
anorexin, which promotes wakefulness. A disruption to the sleep-wake rhythm commonly leaves older adults fatigued during the day, but frustratingly restless at night. Not everyone is vulnerable to sleep changes in later life. Some people age more successfully than others, so some people sleep better than others as they get older. Non-pharmaceutical interventions are being explored to boost the quality of sleep, like electrical stimulation to amplify brain waves during sleep, and acoustic tones that act like a metronome to slow brain rhythms. The American College of Physicians has acknowledged that sleeping pills should not be the first-line knee-jerk response to sleep problems because they sedate the brain rather than help it sleep naturally. It's also important to change the culture of sleep in terms of quantity versus quality. We used to talk just about quantity, but we need not just a sufficient number of hours, we need the right quality of sleep as well. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's podcast. Hope that you found the information that I enjoyed bringing to you interesting and informative, and I hope that until we get together again next time, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.